moral compass. Can anything or anyone stop these senseless acts of brutality? Don't ask because they won't tell. A Missouri school kept parents in the dark about a transgender bathroom policy. What a new lawsuit exposes about a school's power over parents. Space Force fail. The military's newest branch puts out a breathless press release promising new uniforms by 2025. Yet China and Russia have hypersonic missiles that we don't. Is it too late for America's military to get back to war fighting? Sex and the 70-some things. He doesn't have gray hair. He has wisdom highlights. Hollywood's hottest single is older than Jed Clampett. Meet the newest bachelor. He's Gary. And I'm your first golden bachelor. Grandpa Simpson's got nothing on him. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, what I'm about to say, you can't say. But that makes it all the more important that we talk about it, and that we talk about it honestly. So on point tonight, the moral decay among urban black youth and the predictable results. Overnight, gangs looted their way through Philadelphia, fighting with police at the Apple Store, the Lululemon Store, the Foot Locker, and others. An Instagrammer who goes by the name Meatball explained it this way. This is what happens when we don't get no justice in our city. This is why we out here, because you cops don't know how to keep your hands to yourself. Hmm. Okay, so according to Meatball... They are looting the Apple Store because when they loot the Apple Store, police arrest them. It probably doesn't matter if the logic makes sense to you. It makes sense to her. Last night, we showed you the beating of a man in broad daylight by two others in an affluent Chicago neighborhood. As awful as that video is to watch, the assailants walked away like they had just finished eating lunch. Local business owner explained why. Not afraid of the cops, they're not afraid of the law, they're not afraid of anyone. Because they know they're going to be back out within hours. And... There is the video from Las Vegas, where two young men stole a car and intentionally chased down a stranger on a bike. Intentionally chased him down, hitting him and killing him. Ready? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> from the arrest report, the man you are looking at right there, told police, you think this juvenile expletive is going to do some expletive. I'll be out 
in 30 days, I'll bet you. And to be fair, he's probably right. The depravity is difficult to understand, especially among those willing to commit murder or to beat people in Chicago. They didn't beat the victim to rob him. They robbed him and then kept beating him. Last night, we made the point that if these were whites committing similar crimes against blacks, they would be instantly labeled hate crimes. America would be outraged. It would lead every evening newscast. But if chasing down someone on a bike and hitting them with a car isn't a hate crime, what is? If randomly beating someone in broad daylight after you rob them isn't a hate crime, what is? If you don't have to have hate in your heart to do that, what do you? Once people feel it's okay to loot, once the culture tells them there are no consequences for stealing or for anything else because of past wrongs, well then, pushing people in front of subway cars, which is now the going thing in New York City, is not that big of a stretch. Chasing them down in cars becomes sport. There's, of course, a common theme among all the crimes that we have shown you. The perpetrators are urban black youth, devoid of any moral compass, and in many cases, devoid of any regard for human life. Of course, in America's history, there have been plenty of times, more than we would ever like to account or admit, when the roles have been reversed, where white men perpetrated horrible crimes against blacks. But thankfully, in recent years, when that happened, a rightful moral outcry followed. The country was appalled and soul-searching was required. But today, the mere mention of the moral decay in urban black America gets you branded a racist. That's part of the problem, too. With us now, criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor Philip Turner, and Mark Claxton, retired NYPD detective with 20 years of experience. Gentlemen, I will start uh, and appreciate you guys being here. Uh, Mark, uh, appreciate you being here as well. P police... Um, the easy answer, I guess, is, is that police are handcuffed, right? And therefore, the, the, we have lawless streets, so people will do whatever. The question is, what would bring people to do these things, not just to steal, but to beat and to chase people down with cars? I think you start off with a faulty premise. Uh, I don't think there's a, a, a permissiveness necessarily. I think what we are, we are witnessing is the cyclical nature of criminal activity, and uh, perhaps some additional social factors involved in it. You know, there are theories about the, 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 the reasons for these crime fluctuations that we're having. And, and the most common one nowadays is the belief that if you release certain social controls, that tends to lead to more violent behavior and thereby leading to some additional crime. Uh, but I don't think that should be uh, attached to a group of, uh, of of people, but rather criminal opportunists in large part, and then there should be a deeper examination as as far as the, uh, the the factors that lead to crime in general. And then, what are we quantifying? What crimes are increasing? If they are increasing, you know, the fact is that this year murder is down uh, generally in in, in in most cities uh, throughout the United States, but. What's more important than statistics in our sense is what people feel. And if people feel unsafe and if people are victimized and in their mind, quite clearly and rightfully, then crime is, quote unquote, out of control. Hmm. 
I, I, I take your point, but I'm, I'm wondering where, where as a society we go from here, Philip. And, and I, I understand the idea of, of a secular nature of people committing crimes. But at some point, you got people committing crimes, but there's the why someone has it in their mind to chase someone down with a car and hit and kill them. That, that, that's, that's different than, than robbing a store or stealing a liquor yeah. bottle or something that, Philip. And I'm, I'm wondering if what, what this foretolds for entire communities now, um, where these people that we're seeing right now participate in this behavior, they're the ones who are going to become parents of the next generation in these communities. Well, I think one thing that we have to recognize here, and to, to cut to the heart of this thing, these people do these things not because of any sort of disinvestment or racism or anything like that. The, the solution or the, the, the reason is they do it because they want to and because they believe that they can get away with it and do it. And there is no sort of social um, disgust for them doing it. And there's no consequences. And they know it. So they do it. And they're going to continue to do it. And that's why this has increased. There's no excuse for it, none whatsoever. Um, yes, these people will become parents, and some of them probably are parents now. And what this does is just uh, show the next generation that this is how you, you act. This is how you comport yourself. And it's okay because nothing happens. There's no consequence, nothing. So they're going to continue yeah. to do it. There's no excuse yep. for it. Uh, yeah, and yeah, also, it comes from the top, too. For example, the, 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 the item in Chicago, the mayor made no comment, nothing. The only thing he did was say, uh, refer to the Chicago Police Department. Instead of having a press conference and, and denouncing this as outrageous and saying that we're going to catch the perpetrators and that we're going to lock them up for as long as we possibly can, he said nothing. And you're so right in your comment. If this had been someone white doing this, Oh, there, th this would be going on every news cycle continuously. Um, all the, the people who normally come on would be saying how outrageous it is, how they've got to have federal legislation to do this and that. But yeah. all of them. I, I want to I give Mark. I want to give Mark one more chance, just because uh, I got about thirty seconds left. So I'll let you answer the question, Mark. Does it? You know, people were actually surprised by how the Philadelphia police responded because they did respond um, and they did were able to arrest some people. Um, which is very different than what I saw on the streets of Philadelphia, certainly in 2020, um, during the rioting and looting um, there. This would be the question, though. Uh, if people are let out of jail within uh, less than 24 hours after being arrested for this kind of behavior, uh, as we see so often, I can just imagine that there's a lot of police who say, why am I bothering doing this? Well, I think uh, professional police officers understand, at least at this point, that their primary responsibility job is to respond effectively to patterns of crime, trends of crime, or incidents of crime, and, and leave it to the politicians, the legislators, to then establish laws, rules, and regulations. Leave it to the prosecutors, and they're demanding this of prosecutors down to actually yeah. apply the laws that are on the book currently right now effectively uh, to do that and to, if necessary, incarcerate individuals according to when, you know, the terms of when they are convicted. So I think police officers have that clear responsibility. They're doing the job that needs to be done as far as responding to it. It's up for other entities 
to come up with other strategies that will address the issues of repeat offenders, which I yeah, think I know. Look, Phil, should Phil, be the primary Phil, Phil made the point. Philip made the point already. Um, the, the politicians, the mayor of sh- Chicago, won't even talk about this. So it, it tells you where the political will is. Gentlemen, I appreciate you both being here. Thank you very much. Sadly, I don't think it's the, the last time we're going to have to deal with this topic. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The new Guardians of Our Galaxy, the U.S. Space Force, has released their uniforms into final testing stage. A breathless press release said... Over the next few weeks, 100 Guardians, that's what the Space Force calls themselves, will test the uniforms for comfort and functionality. Press release quotes Wade Yamada, U.S. Space Force Director of Staff Deputy. We listen intently to Guardians' design and fit requests. In many ways, Guardians help select our current service dress design. The next step in developing the dress uniforms is the wear test to assess the durability, functionality, and comfort of the prototype. The wear test will begin in summer of 2023. Now, remember, these are not to go to space, okay? This is just to wear around the office. It's a buttoned-up blazer with baggy pants. Meantime, of course, the Russians and Chinese have hypersonic missiles that go into space that we don't. But fear not, Space Force will have their new uniforms ready by 2025, and they're excited. Here now, member of the House Armed Services Committee, Representative Mark Alford of the great state of Missouri. It's good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Hey, look, no, no disrespect to the Space Force, right? Okay, and, and certainly the people who signed up to, to be in it. But the Chinese can build an aircraft carrier in two years, and we can't even get uniforms in two years? It is pretty sad. Look, we have got to get our act together. You know, this is a, a kind of a funny story on these space uniforms. We have uh, just over 8,000 members of the Space Force. That number is growing. Space is the future of warfare in the world. Right now, we're dealing with China that's uh, increasing their assets in the space with, with missiles, uh, with uh, that, that, submarines. We've, we, are, we are close to a conflict with China. Some are saying that's all, that's, all well, that's, all, that's all well and good. But I, I, I go back to if we can't get uniforms in two years, OK, how are we going to get China that can get aircraft carriers in two years? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, in some in some ways we are majoring in the minors. Uh, the uniforms are very important, I think, for the morale of the Space Force, sure. the look that they want to present going forward. I guarantee you one thing. Senator Fetterman's not going to be wearing one of those uniforms. <laughs> uh, but <Sorry. laughs> I OK, could, but. We have got to concentrate the Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee. We have to concentrate on beating China. And that means deterring them from possibly invading Taiwan, possibly as early as January of 25. All right. Uh, We put this on social media yesterday uh, ahead of your uh, appearance here. Um, And and people came off with some interesting responses. Are they supposed to work naked uh, was one from Mr. (laughs) McCombs. Um, Another, this is so dumb. The U.S. is literally light years ahead of Russia and China. But God forbid the newest branch has new uniforms. Um, These people have got to wear something. Looks uncomfortable, though. Look for space camo coming soon. Black with star specks and planets on them. That sounds about right. Uh, Again, but um, so many of these responses said, hey, look, you know, we're light years ahead of Russia and China. Maybe maybe true with Russia a little bit. Uh, but with China, uh, we're not. And I'm, no, we're not. I'm, I'm wondering when you said we're majoring in the minors, why is that? Look, there are a lot of people involved in the Department of Defense. I know that the we on the House Armed Services Committee are committed. We've done segments on this of restoring dignity 
uh, getting rid of the woke policies, the DEI. That's one of the main things that we concentrated. Cutting the budget out of these, the, this, this money out of the budget and putting it back into recruitment and retention. And that's what we're concentrating on. If the Space Force needs great uniforms to add to its morale and help recruit people, this is a whole special class of people that are joining the Space Force. It is these, not, are folks who, these are those who operate our satellite system. Exactly. And, okay. And, and all these things are going to be working in concert. Space, missiles, submarines. The potential conflict with China could be something like we've never seen before. And so the Space Force growing, getting its look, getting its brand, uh, recruiting people to this prestigious new branch of our military. Uh, Let's go forward with it. Let's be the best we can be in space. All right. Good to see you. Thank Thank you, you, Congressman. The baby boomers are getting their own, literally their own dating show. The 70-something, who is now the hottest single in Hollywood. You ever heard about this? He posts his thirst traps in a leather-bound album. His DMs have postage. All right, illegal immigrants continue to make a mockery of the border wall as thousands march right into America. Chris Oliveros of the Texas Department of Public Safety on the other side of this break about why all of a sudden it's large groups of military-age men. The families in these groups coming across have disappeared. More than 12 million immigrants that passed through Ellis Island between 1892 and 1954. And we had seen just huge numbers of people coming in per day that had, that far eclipsed, um, far eclipsed what we're seeing right now. That's Congresswoman Alexander Ocasio-Cortez talking about immigration as you heard through Ellis Island. In her words, far, far more people came through Ellis Island than are coming across our borders now. Not to confuse her with the facts, but that is demonstrably false. Last month, about a quarter million people came across the southern border illegally. That is roughly the population of Norfolk, Virginia. That is more than that came across, came through Ellis Island, I should say, in a year. One month at the southern border, one year at Ellis Island. What's more, as we told you last night, those coming across the southern border are very different than those coming through Ellis Island. The families escaping oppression and famine in their country often waved American flags coming to the promised land. Those coming across the border now wave the flag of their home country, which is curious, considering they are coming to America claiming asylum from alleged oppression in their home country. With us now, Lieutenant Chris Oliveris of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. And I know you put out that video uh, as well of the Venezuelan flag on the island um, in Texas. What I'm most interested in is we're looking at this new video, and we've got the video of the chase that you sent us um, as well, is that these groups are so different than when you and I were on the border together. It's not families coming across uh, begging for help. It is large groups of military-age men, well-organized and well-focused well, well to get through your guys' defenses. Well, you're absolutely correct, Lydia. Now it's, 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 it's a different time now, of course. When you came down to the border, we saw, you know, majority were families. We did see some single adults that were trying to, you know, evade capture or they would voluntarily, you know, turn themselves into Border Patrol. But right now, especially in Eagle Pass, just in the most recent week, 
Uh, we saw probably one of the largest influxes of illegal immigration between ports of entry. And around the same time, two years ago, uh, that's when we had the same situation in Del Rio with the Haitians. But predominantly in these groups, we are seeing uh, middle-aged men, single males, single females that are amongst these groups, very little families uh, that, are, that are coming across between the ports of entry. And I think a lot has to do with the fact that if you look back during Title 42, when we were in Brownsville, Texas, same situation. Majority were Venezuelans. We did have some families, but also we had, we had many more single adult males and females that were coming across, and they were being released to the country. So obviously the word gets back to their country and those that are making the journey to the Texas-Mexico border that if you do come across and turn yourself in, then you will be released. And that's what we're seeing right now. And I think it's what's causing this, this influx with single adults, the fact that there is no consequences uh, for these single adults and they're being released mm-hmm. to the country. So as long as that keeps happening, we're going to continue seeing this influx of people coming across the border. And I'm correct in saying that the more who come across, um, the harder it is to to detain them and send them back. It sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Latest Southwest border encounters, Sunday, uh, nearly 11,000, Monday, 9,000, Tuesday, 11,000. Uh, you put that together, that's a, that's a Major League Baseball stadium in three days of people coming um, through. Uh, that's the ones we know about. We always have to talk about the ones we don't know about. Is it possible that we have all of these groups of military age men, single men, coming across at at one specific point um, with train loads of them of them behind them without that being planned? Well, this is very coordinated. And one thing to keep in mind, of course, this is all orchestrated by criminal organizations in Mexico. They saturate areas along the border by sending large groups of illegal immigrants, whether it be in Texas or Arizona, and that depletes resources. We're seeing what's happening in Eagle Pass for now in real time. Border patrol agents are being pulled from the line uh, to process the, the you know this large influx of illegal immigrants. And with that, you have other gaps that are exposed along the border. We've talked about this many times, even when you first came down, how that's always been a concern, especially when we talk about threats to public safety and national security. But even more so now that you have these large number of people that are coming across daily across the border, and there's not enough resources to patrol those areas along the river mm-hmm. or even areas that are not being uh, checkpoints as well or even highways that are used for human smuggling. That's what we're trying to do right now with our state troopers is focus on those areas where we see criminal activity while Border Patrol is processing these individuals because that's where the real threats lie. You see in that video, we see an increase in human smuggling because, of course, organizations take full advantage of that. They exploit that. They use that to their advantage when they can tie up resources and then bring across criminals and, of course, increase smuggling or drugs or even fentanyl that's coming across yeah. while no one's patrolling those areas. Yeah, and also the large group of Chinese uh, as well that we've been hearing that yep. have come across. Some, some, some with ties back to um, the, the Communist Party there, some with the People's Liberation Army, other with Chinese intelligence that I know you guys have intercepted. Uh, Lieutenant, good to see you, sir. Thank you, as always. Always a pleasure, Liam. Thank you. Yes, sir. History tells us that Hollywood is not known as a town to be kind or nice to the old. Stars shine brightest when they are young, but... That has changed, at least on television. Here's a town, after all, where Indiana Jones is now played by 81-year-old Harrison Ford, arguably the biggest action star Liam Neeson is 71, and Yellowstone's John Dutton is played by 68-year-old Kevin Costner. And now comes Hollywood's next big thing. And like those men, he is no spring chicken. He gets the early bird special anytime he wants. If you call him, he'll answer the phone. He doesn't have gray hair. 
He has wisdom highlights. Florida wants to retire and move to him. He's Gary. And I'm your first golden bachelor. That's the trailer for ABC's newest dating show, The Golden Bachelor, where 72-year-old grandpa Gary Turner will try to find love among 22 women competing for his heart. The women he will date will all be age-appropriate, 60 to 75 years old, in a country where almost 40% of Americans between the ages of 65 and 74 are divorced. This kind of dating game kind of makes sense. Samantha Rollins is here, deputy editor of entertainment at Insider. Boy, I just hope I look that good at 70. Me too. Me too. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I I think about this show. How much of this is business, right? Because older people watch a lot more television than younger people. So this is a way to sort of connect at that level, like this could be real. And how much of it is just because they've run out of ideas of The Bachelor? Um, I think it's a great question. I think a lot of it is just really injecting something new into the franchise. The franchise is more than 20 years old at this point, uh, and it really hasn't changed that much. So this is definitely a way to do something new. Let's be honest. You look at this, the, the pictures of this guy, and he doesn't look over 50. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of 45 year olds who would be very happy if they looked like Gary. But what is it about this show, about this franchise that works so well? Um, I think there's a degree of, first of all, cultural relevance. The show has been around forever. It's a household name. People know The Bachelor, and even if they don't watch it, they might be curious to find out what happens at the end. Yeah, I can't help but think that it's a little more real, right? It's like the country music version of a of a dating show. You're going to be forced to deal with real things, right? Marriage, divorce, aging, um, death of a of a spouse some of these people probably you know have had had a spouse die I, I feel like it has a lot more relatability and i'm wondering if that is a theme we're starting to see in hollywood right is this this requirement now maybe a little bit with yellowstone too right of of having movies and television shows that people that real people not on the coast that urban that rule america can relate to Absolutely. Um, I think especially with the franchise in general, viewers were getting a little bit tired of how storylines would feel even manufactured just on the regular Bachelor. Um, And it's really exciting to see like when you have a fresh perspective and somebody also who has been through so much in life, Gary is a widower himself, um, that there's just going to naturally be another level of relatability there. All the women on this are um, also have had decades of experience in their own life. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe they've been divorced. Mm. There's so many more real issues that will have to come up that don't come up when you have 20-somethings who are just trying to figure out who they are um, on the show. (laughs) might not know yet, which is fair, too, but it's different. Yeah, also, you you think about the 20-somethings who are trying to become reality TV stars and then Instagram stars. Who knows? Maybe... Maybe there's some 16, 70-year-olds now on the the Golden Bachelor who become Instagram influencers. Samantha, great chat, and thank you. Thank you so much. New evidence of wire transfers of large sums of cash to Hunter Biden have many asking why a jury isn't already deliberating his innocence or guilt. Would anybody else have already been on trial? I have no comment on... Any investigation that's going on, that's up to the Justice Department, and uh, that's all I have to say. 
Live pictures of Detroit, where President Trump will speak soon to the United Auto Workers. He will undoubtedly bring up Hunter Biden and Republican claims that the first son acted as Joe Biden's bagman in bribery schemes with Chinese and Ukrainian businessmen, at least so far. Prosecutors have chosen not to charge the younger Biden with any crimes, and Republicans appear this close, but not quite there, in linking payments to Hunter Biden with his father's actions. Let's look at what the new evidence released today shows. One, it is clear that then-Vice President Joe Biden's political power and influence was, quote, the brand that Hunter Biden was selling all over the world. Even more alarming, the Biden family foreign influence peddling operation suggests an effort to sway U.S. policy decisions. Suggest, but even at that press conference, they seemed sorely lacking on proof. Much like news last night that money wired to Hunter from Chinese business associates used President Biden's home address in Delaware. Shan Wu is here, former federal prosecutor and counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. It's good to see you as always. I think there's a lot of people sitting at home and saying, look, if it was anybody else, they would already be indicted. If they were Bob Menendez, they would already be indicted. <laughs> well, Bob Menendez is definitely indicted. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think the problem here is, first of all, he has been charged. And then the, and the gun crime, yeah, yeah. Right, but that, that broke down. But with these particular pieces of evidence that they're talking about, it's just like you were pointing out, it really isn't quite there. I mean, if you really look at it from a prosecutor's standpoint, for example, the address being uh, the President Biden's residence, I mean, if that was his legal address, that's his legal address. That's very different than the bank account being Joe Biden's bank account. That's the kind of step you need to have there. And the suggestion even that they could have been trying to influence policy certainly makes sense you know, common sense, but you need to show something that happened in terms of an official act or some step that happened there. The, cl the closest it seems as Republicans have, right, is that Hunter Biden is on Burisma's payroll. Mm -hmm. And we can all acknowledge he wasn't on Burisma's payroll because he was ex an right. expert in, in, in Ukrainian <laughs> business and international yeah. mining and everything else. And, the, and Joe Biden, and he's admitted this, to publicly pressuring the Ukrainians to fire the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma. What else do you need? Well, there the problem is, in terms of a criminal allegation, is you'd have to show that there is some nexus between any money or favoritism and Biden's official act then as vice president. Factual background there is, I mean, might choose not to believe it, that he wanted to he, meaning the United States, was trying to get rid of that prosecutor because he was not being tough enough. No, 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 I, no I, I get that, not, but not I'm just saying, right like, when you say the, the, the connection, I mean, in Burisma, you know, at the same time, Burisma wanted to get rid of the prosecutor, too, so you right. can argue whether yeah. <laughs> happy yeah. coincidence or not. But what does the government need to get to? What do the Republicans need to get to that, that you would say, okay, there it is? Well, on the Burisma issue? Or on any of these issues? Um, well, on any of these issues, you really have to be able to draw much more than a hint of a line to Biden's official acts. I mean, that one, if you could show that it was done to benefit Burisma, yeah, you, you could have something to look at. It's still very hard, particularly on that issue, Leland, to so make when people a are looking case. at Bob Menendez and saying, okay, he got a lot of money, Hunter right. Biden got a lot of money from foreign, foreign governments that wanted to influence right. U.S. policy, clearly. Uh, or you a foreign businessman, what's the difference? 
Well, the difference there is it's Menendez, who is the government official personally getting the money. And in the Biden analogy, it's a member of the official's family getting the money. And that's not going to be the same solid nexus as it is for Menendez. Even that important point you bring out about the efforts to influence there, there is strong uh, evidence of it being the U.S. policy to have pressured for that prosecutor to be admitted. It's not really like an about face for Biden. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, look, fair point. All right, well, uh, it will will all continue. (laughs) Good to see you. Good to see you, sir. Thank you very much. A Missouri school system tried to hide its transgender bathroom policy from parents. Just the latest example of educators thinking they know what's best for your kids. The lawsuit about it next. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey is suing a Missouri school board claiming the district had closed-door discussions without parents about bathroom and locker room access for transgender students. According to the lawsuit, Wentzville, it's just outside of St. Louis, the school board there conducted a closed meeting on June 14th in which it discussed the district's transgender student bathroom policy because a student requested a gender-based accommodation. The attorney general is claiming the school board violated the open meetings law, saying parents have the right to know who is in the bathroom with their children. Members of the Wentzville School Board knowingly and purposefully denied parents that right when they shrouded the transgender student bathroom usage policy in secrecy, which directly violates the open meetings law. Chris is with us now. Boy, Chris, you'd think that after what happened in Virginia, school boards would learn? Uh, No. This is a very uh, (laughs) active dynamic, people seeking advantage. I'm not a huge fan of the issue, uh, to be honest. I think think that there's some... uh, really hard calls and some really uh, gray spaces in this. And I understand why there's a lot of agonizing. Uh, Either they broke the rule as a school board or they didn't. Either the affidavits stand up or they don't. That issue is easy. I worry, though, uh, about the politicizing of this. I don't think it's helpful to people who are dealing with it personally. And I don't think that it is a mainline concern for a majority of anybody's community. And I think you have to be careful about politicians using it as a distraction, as a proxy for your interests. I think there are a lot of other things this attorney general could be focusing on rather than this. Not that he shouldn't. If they broke the rule, they broke the rule. I I hear you. You say, though, it's not a mainline concern for parents. I covered the 2020 won Virginia governor's race. And Mm. it was the first campaign I'd ever covered Mm. where voters told me, both rural voters and suburban voters, Mm. the number one issue on their mind was education. Now, education was a proxy for other things. It was Mm -hmm. a a proxy for parents' rights. And what I can't Mm. figure out, put the transgender thing aside, whether it's books, whether it's what is being taught in classrooms about sex ed, whatever it is, why, why is there this feeling by so many educators that they know better than parents. Um, As you will see, God willing, someday, uh, you will never walk into a parent-teacher conference where the teacher is there to listen, (laughs) okay? They are there to tell you about your kid and what your kid does. They design the curriculum. Uh, You know, they're the pedant. You know, they're they're the people with the education to do it. Uh, And that's supposed to be the job that they teach. They don't teach what you want them to teach. But clearly, clearly, We're not talking about the three R's here, okay? We're talking about the shaping of moral backstops, of ethical considerations, of what's right and wrong and good and bad. 
this is a very gray space, not just in humanity, uh, but in terms of teaching and what is right and what isn't. So I get why teachers think they know better than me how to teach my kid algebra. They better because I suck at it. But on these other questions, that's where parents get up. And there are a lot of legitimate issues. I don't think bathrooms are one of them. It's interesting. We started the program with the moral decay in America. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the video we saw last night out of Philadelphia and some of the other brutal, brutal acts we've seen over the past couple of weeks. Wh- where are the parents? And when these people who are doing this grow up to be parents, you know what it is. Welcome back from East Palestine. Um, what do you got on the show tonight? I'm going to look at that, too, as a sign of the times. Uh, you have this uh, troika of tragedy, right? You, you had um, the kids in Vegas. Uh, horrible. Yep. And, and hearing the wantonness. Beatings, beatings in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the looting in Philadelphia. Uh, and now this case in Baltimore where this guy had no business being free. And yep. he ruined one of the bright lights in our society. Why are we? Is it about permissibility or is it about the system? Is it both? We're going to discuss. You know, Chris, uh, hey, look, I love it when you're doing what I'm doing and I'm doing what you're doing. It, 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 it makes me feel like we're on to something. So there you go. Uh, you'll do it better. We'll see you after Donald Trump's speech. It's going to be great. Uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, coming up, speaking of Donald Trump's speech, he says no thanks. The Republican debate makes you wonder, why are the other less than magnificent seven candidates even bothering to show up to the debate? on News Nation. All eyes are on Michigan. A day after the president joins a picket line, the former president joins the fray with an address to auto workers on strike. Live team coverage of former President Trump's speech. Then Chris Cuomo, Blake Berman, and the one and only Bill O'Reilly break it all down. What it means for the American car industry and the race for the White House. It's a special edition of Cuomo. Tonight, only on News Nation. Live pictures ahead of President Trump's speech at Drake Enterprises in Detroit, Michigan. Not exactly, at least based on this camera angle, an enormous crowd for the former president uh, who will take the stage an hour ahead of the Republican debate among the seven other challengers uh, who would like the nomination. Lauren Wright, professor of political science at Princeton University, uh, is with us now. Lauren, what I think is fascinating is that all of a sudden, right now. We're in this situation where auto workers, of all things, union auto workers, kind of represent the swing vote in, the pre- in what will be the, pres- in the, the presidential general election for next November. Sure. And I mean, look, the Democratic Party is hemorrhaging working class voters across all subgroups, age, race, you name it. It's even been that way in the Trump years. And so it makes sense that Republicans, especially Trump, wouldn't take for granted the fact that union workers normally support Democrats and he's going for them. I think that's smart. I would tell any Republican candidate to do the same. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We, you know, we, we juxtapose this um, with, say, Tim Scott, uh, who is going to be on the stage in Simi Valley uh, buying for the Republican nomination. He's the one who said, well, if you if you strike, you get fired. Telling people they get fired is not exactly the way to win the hearts and minds of, of union workers, perhaps. Uh, this is the boss of the UAW um, who will not be 
at President Trump's speech. He was at President Biden's brief stop at the picket lines. But the president of the UAW uh, doesn't have much, uh, well, regard, shall we say, for former President Trump. Take a listen. Why the pathetic irony that the former president is going to hold a rally for union members at a non-union business. And, you know, all you have to do is look at his track record. The ultimate show of his how much he cares about our workers was in 2019 when he was the president of the United States. Where was he then? I guess this would be the question. What is the disconnect between say, union leadership, and you think about this, whether it's coal miners and, you know, the coal miners unions, the auto workers unions, on and on and on, uh, the electrical workers, construction workers, the leadership, union leadership, and the union rank and file. There is a big disconnect because union leadership is very well resourced. They're very well known. They're operational politicians. They have a lot of power and they're elites. That's the right way to look at them. Their workers don't necessarily vote in a block. Yes, of course, they express their interests in a block and that's how they get power. But it is important that candidates don't take for granted that union members will support one party or another. You need to try to get those people. And it is fascinating because traditionally the posture of the Republican Party Mm -hmm. has been Tim Scott's. If you strike, you get fired and they support corporations. But again, you need to go after those voters and they are diverse. Yeah, they're diverse and and they are up for grabs for the first time. I said earlier, I said earlier, as we look at the polling uh, now, we got only got about a minute before uh, the top of the hour when President Trump's expected to speak. But you think about the, those are those seven on the stage in Simi Valley versus where President Trump is. Uh, the seven don't even add up to Trump's numbers. At some point, right. uh, is the debate tonight rearranging, you know, an argument among those rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? I mean, a little bit. I would say a harsh but accurate way to look at it is who's attacking Trump and who's not. The ones who aren't maybe are people who are running for second place or a cabinet seat. It's just very late in the game to make up so many points, Leland. And so depending on what they say to each other or whether they're attacking Trump, we can really sort of guess what their strategy is going forward. It might be minimizing losses rather than going for the nomination. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.